Welcome to Rich Conversations. This is episode 242, David, Dr. Dave Rothmund, on creating the Rich Answers concept, researching and writing, teaching a Civil War class, and the history of baseball. Historian David, Dr. Dave Rothmund, returns to the show for his fourth appearance. Always great having him on. Uh, love talking with Dr. Dave. And uh, we recorded this actually outside Lincoln Station in Chicago, across from the historic Biograph Theater and the marquee sign. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see that beautiful sign in the background. And basically in this episode, we just kind of uh, catch up on each other's lives from the past year. And uh, we share where we're at now in life. David actually came up with the idea of Rich Answers. That was not my idea. That was Dr. Dave's. And so in this episode, we kind of talk about how that came about and and, and uh, why we decided to do it. And um, so, so we explore that. David describes his research and writing for his dissertation. And I talk about like writing fiction and the strangeness of writing in the summer compared to just like bunkering down during cold months. It's quite a bit different. David is also teaching a class on the Civil War this summer at University of Illinois, Chicago, and uh, we talk about, you know, that time in history and how it's kind of relevant today um, and how just like the Civil War was only 160 years ago. And he's a historian and I love learning about history. And when you look in terms of history, 160 years is very, it's a very small, um, small amount of time. So uh, we discussed that. And I've gotten into baseball a lot more this year, and, and David is proposing a class on the history of baseball in hopes that it serves as a vehicle to get students more excited about history in general. This is a fantastic episode. I always love talking with Dr. Dave. We have three other episodes you can find on YouTube or on the podcast. It's a lot of fun. So why don't we begin? Welcome to Rich Conversations. Uh, this is going to be an exciting episode because I am always excited to talk to Dr. Dave, David Rothman here. Welcome back to the show. This is your fourth time. My fourth time. I'm a regular, beyond regular at this point. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I always love being on, so I'm always excited about it. Uh, so it's great to have you here. Man, where do we begin? Like, So we're recording this at Lincoln Station in uh, Lincoln Park where we both... Uh, work and uh, mingle at. Yep. And uh, we're recording this on the patio for the first time. Usually when we record here, we're inside in the right. back room right. with the, the brick wall. Uh, I thought we'd try something out different today. So we got we got three cameras set up on the sidewalk here. So hopefully no one knocks them over <laughs> or it's forecasted to rain in like a half hour. So hopefully we can avoid that. <laughs> but we got this beautiful marquee in the background. Yeah, you gotta the take biograph. advantage of it you have it, right? You know. Yeah. Yeah, you might as well use what you got, yeah, right? Yeah, totally agree. And uh, I'm excited to have you back. It's been about a year. Yeah. Around there. Uh, the episode... Which episode was it, man? It was like 109, I want to say. Yeah. I remember it was... Um, I was doing some travel for work um, at the very beginning of July. And I think we recorded right before I left. Okay. So it's almost... It's like two weeks from a year. So, 
of a lot of people, uh, I gotta see what your schedule is like and yeah. like morph and flex, be flexible within it. It's a nightmare. So, <laughs> well, it's different like recording in person. Yeah. Uh, so like, so Dr. Dave here, he was uh, actually the first guest where we actually like experimented with video. Yeah, I remember. That was fun. And we failed. But it's fun. <laughs> This the is, day was great. This I is, enjoyed uh, the day. Oh my gosh, this was such a great night. This was back in 2020, and uh, probably a little too much bourbon, but that's okay. Not at that point yet. <laughs> not at that point yet. <laughs> Later than that. So we uh, so we uh, this is July or August 2020, maybe June. I don't know. And uh, we were in my backyard at my old spot when I lived in North Center, and. We got this cool backyard, and I thought, you know, let's smoke some cigars, drink some Koval bourbon. Yeah, love it. And uh, we just talked history and just just chat about life. So we set up my DSLR camera up, with this you know just straight on shot. And then like 16 minutes <laughs> into the recording, you hear the lens shut off. Yeah. And come back on again. And I'm like, huh? It doesn't seem right. That doesn't uh, seem right. <laughs> But uh, and then now we got we got a uh, three three iPhones set up. And we got the audio from it, which at the end of the day is probably the most important thing. So yeah, yeah. and now we got yeah things things are just like different now. Yeah, um, and I guess that's where we should start. Is like I've known you since twenty nineteen. I want to say yeah. yeah, and I feel like. Uh, like over the past year, now that things have been opened up more with COVID and uh, regular things are happening, we haven't been able to find time to just like kick it. Yeah, yeah. Like it's the, hard. Like the old days. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so it's good to have you back, man. What? What's been going on with you? How? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that. Not to immediately trash everything you just said. I think one of the the wild things is specifically from like where I'm at with my career and school and everything, I've seen your growth over like since the first time I was on till now is like astronomical. Like you have tons of guests from all over the world talking to like such interesting people. Um, and like that's super inspiring and interesting to watch like the growth of a creator and stuff like that. Um, for me, it's just the changing of degrees of where I'm at with school. Um, so when I was on for the first time, I was still doing coursework for my degree, I was taking classes, I was teaching on, um, at UIC. Um, the last time we had spoke, I was just about to defend my prospectus, which is like the key to get like that ABD status where you're like considered a historian, but you just have to do the dissertation. Okay. Um, ABD just means all but dissertations. You finished everything else. You're there. Okay. Um, all these acronyms. Yeah, I know. There's too many. <laughs> all um, these acronyms in academia. <laughs> And so we talked right before I defended that, and now I'm at this point where it's been a year, still <laughs> grinding away on the dissertation, um, yeah. still trying to do travel if I can, but you know I'm still in that, that world of school. School has changed, but it's still school. Where I've seen the degrees and the levels that you've jumped through, and I think that that's been really exciting and awesome to watch as someone who's been on the podcast for a while. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, 
how would you say I guess you, you sort of answered this but like how would you say you've grown or, or life has changed for you and then I was curious like your external perspective of like me yeah. sometimes I'm like totally blind to it yeah um, I think it's a lot easier to have someone tell you how they have seen you change because I to talk about myself um, like that's hard like I don't I feel the same as I did yesterday and the day before like um, I will say that I, I've become much more comfortable I've always thought that I was like a, a good teacher but I feel like I've really found my niche and found like a pattern where I feel super comfortable in the classroom with my students um, and now that I'm going into my fifth year at UIC I've been able to see students that I taught when they were freshmen graduate and tell me send me emails and tell me that they're off going to grad school or going to med school and that's been super exciting and like kind of a little bit of insight to know that okay yeah the work I am doing it is impacting students lives it does matter um, whereas like in the very beginning when we, I first started to come on the podcast, I didn't know if that was the case. I, they said I was a good teacher in TA form, but it's hard to really like judge that. Um, I will say that I think with anything, research-wise and writing-wise, just constantly trying to improve and perfect a craft that I've been working on for over a decade at this point. Um, and and I, I think that's like probably the biggest change. It's very slow, small, gradual change. And to contrast that with what I've seen from you, um, when I first met you, the podcast hadn't existed yet. You were doing a lot of writing, and we were talking a lot about history, and we were just kind of picking each other's brains. And then I saw this like passion ignite, and it's been shocking to see someone grow the way that you have grown as a content creator and as someone how much you've read and how much you've like expanded your brain and your thought process and your interests um i think that's really rare in a lot of people so that's been really exciting to see and watch and i think the podcast in general right like i remember in the very beginning you're getting your feet wet trying to figure out what worked what didn't work and i love a lot of those early episodes a lot of our friends local people we know from work, people we know from just our lives, are on those early episodes. However, to see us get to a point now where you're talking to people in Brazil and in France and all over the world, like, in such a short amount of time, I never anticipated that you would make such large steps. So that's been, like, very incredible to observe as, like, an outside person. Yeah. And, like... I feel like over this course of time, I've learned a lot about myself. Yeah. And I, and those that have listened to this podcast and, and watched these videos, like they know kind of the morning routine I have and just like yeah. kind of my, how I go about things. But also to like be objective about your own self. Right. And like also like notice what you're good at and right. also what you're not good at. Right. Or areas of improvement and, right. and things like that. And, um, like, something I... Which people might find ironic, but I don't open up a lot. Yeah. I'm like, I just do my thing. I don't really talk much. I just do my work, which is, like, what 
I've seen my dad do as a farmer and right. just like working for the county. You just like you grind and you do your thing. But like you're one of the people I would say that I feel or I have felt comfortable like opening up to like while we might not over the last year or so had these hour long conversations or like in my backyard for hanging out for four hours right. drinking bourbon just talking about life we haven't had as many of those uh lengthwise but we've had these like little short bursts of like five to ten minutes when we're like passing each other at the bar yeah and i'm like expressing to you some wild stuff that's happening that i don't feel comfortable comfortable telling other people which uh, i think speaks to yeah the relationship first of all cheers to that, that um and i think that that's a sign of a good friend right and i've always talked about how i'm very introverted so it's like hard for me to be super social in a lot of ways and i really it's i can do it i work at a bar i have to do it um but it's very exhausting and with you it's always so easy and if we don't talk to each other for three months yeah. And then you drop an idea on me, we can sit at the bar and talk for an hour about it. Yeah. Um, and it just feels very natural and easy. And I think that that's been something, again, as like this observer of it, being able to like watch you grow and then also know that like we can always fall back into this has been rewarding and fun. I'm glad yeah. that I've been able to make friends like this at Station. So. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, it's starting to rain a little bit, but I think we should keep pushing... I agree. See how waterproof these iPhones are. <laughs> it did say it was looking like it might pass, so we could be okay. okay. Um, lastly, on that point, um, I know a few months back we had talked, and I had kind of like broached this idea of you should have some of your guests ask you questions, um, and I think that that's yes. a really good idea. Not to like humble brag myself here, but like I, I do know you as a person, and I do know that sometimes you you like being the right the microphone in the conversations and learning and like taking in the information but i don't always see you feeling as comfortable to like really open up and make yourself vulnerable and put yourself into those positions i think that the questions that guests have been able to ask you since we talked about that allows you to take some time really think about it and then be open and honest with yourself and with the podcast and like present those ideas and some things that you might not bring up in a normal conversation but someone else might ask you about um and i think that it's it's brought you to life more in the podcast rather than it being something where it's more of like an interview it's people are able to see both the guests and get a little bit more of an idea of who you rich are so yeah props to you on that that has been like a great thing and for me i have fun doing it uh dave Chalk full of great ideas, by the way. He's full of great ideas. <laughs> and he's the uh, the pioneer, the uh, idea man behind the Rich Answers, where every Monday we we take questions from past podcast guests. And I like we do it that way, too, because it limits, like, who's able to ask these questions. Right. Because when I have people on, there is a filter. Like, I go through hundreds of people. Right. Of who could potentially be on uh, with a... Uh, know a business partner that I have who find helps me find these people so they're filtered as like one who I would be friends with and two like are they thoughtful and like right introspective about life in a way um, 
it's been fun and it's been fun to like that's something I've been excited for with summer yeah. is now it's warmer and I can do more I can do more recording outside as right. we are right now uh, props to you for that idea I I think what was the most why I brought that up was it started to get to a point where you were talking to like such a radical range of different people from different backgrounds different life experiences from people who were doing like urban farming in the city to like theoretical scientists in France and I was like I just want to hear what those people would ask you and like how different those questions are and like sometimes they're goofy and they're funny and sometimes they get a little bit more serious and they like yeah. actually prompt you to think and like I remember um, when you were talking to like the NASA scientists or the uh, she works at NASA like those were sweet really great fun good questions that I don't know if I would have thought like they didn't even necessarily have to deal with like space and NASA but it allowed you to have a little bit more of that like personable conversation with someone and like think about the, how you would respond to them and how they would like think about your brain and I just I think it was like a really interesting way to kind of get into the, the heart and mind of Rich yeah. so yeah cheers to you Rich answers <laughs> love it so we're here at Rich Conversations I'm talking to uh, Dr. Dave David Rothman historian writer Great friend, just all around fantastic individual. We talked about writing the last episode. Yes. Uh, tell me more, elaborate more where you're at right now and your process. So, like I mentioned, the last time when we talked, I was pretty much done. I was doing a few small edits here and there to my prospectus, which is basically just the outline that you have to defend of like what will my dissertation become. Um, Let, remind them again what your dissertation is on. So my dissertation is on the long disability rights movement, specifically on the like social, cultural, and political rise of disability following World War II to the passage of 504 in 1973. And then I go a little bit further to 1990 with the passage of the ADA, um, but mostly it's 1945 to 1973. And I've taken a special interest in left-of-center, local grassroots politics and newspapers, and um, interestingly enough, the relationship between sports and disability, specifically the relationship between basketball and disability. Um, so after World War II, when veterans are coming back and they're going to college, um, they're getting their degrees and they're trying to these students, but they also want to participate in ways that they could before. Um, so they try and join some of these intramural sports leagues and oftentimes are denied. So then they take it upon themselves to create a lot of these like wheelchair sports teams, these wheelchair intramural teams. Once that starts, it prompts people who, um, people with disabilities from birth who are at school to be like, oh, like I also want to do this and participate in this, this league. So then they start to join these teams, and then whenever you have a group of people who have this like-minded like philosophy, right, you start to see a lot of real change. So at U of I, there was a huge intramural basketball team, and those students, they didn't just play basketball and go to school. They became activists on their campus. They prompted the school to make a lot of the dorms much more accessible, the sidewalks much more accessible, and now U of I is one of the more accessible colleges in the country due to 
both the veterans and the students with disabilities who kind of co-opted together to create this like vision of what higher ed could be. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to what you asked, but... So you're writing and writing, you're doing research this a summer. Of, a lot of research. Uh, what do you have? What do you have going on this summer? Um, so I'm getting research. I'm getting up to Wisconsin Madison and U of I in July. It's the second and the third week of July, I think. I'll be back for a Taste of Lincoln, so no worries there. Uh, and then I just Taste of Lincoln, by the way, is a street festival. We shut this street down where you've heard all these vehicles whizzing by, right? We shut it down. We have vendors, and everybody just has a good time. Yeah, live music, it's great. Yeah. If you're in the area, you should come see us. It's great. Um, highly recommend. But um, and then in August, I have, I just have to figure out the exact dates for it. But I'm trying to get to California, Berkeley, in August before the semester starts back up. So how how are you gonna get to Berkeley? Are you gonna fly? Are you gonna drive? That's that's part of the planning that I still need to hammer out. Um, I love driving. I would love to drive. It is a very long drive. That's a that's a long drive. <laughs> Um, if I could drive, it would allow me to potentially stop briefly at other places where I don't think they have a ton of sources, but, you know, one collection, a couple folders here or there. If I fly, it'll probably be cheaper, especially with, like, gas prices currently. Um, and oh, yeah. I'll be able to spend more time at Berkeley where there's really the like, greatest amount, greatest number of material that I need. So I'll probably end up flying and just running a car out there, but we'll see. It would be nice to be able to stop at a few other smaller places on the way, but we have to cross that bridge still, so. Yeah, have you been to Berkeley before? I've been to, I have not been to Berkeley. I've been to San Francisco, which is just across the bay. Um, I've heard that it's a gorgeous campus, so I'm very excited that I get to go. Fun fun fact, I've been to the campus at UC Berkeley. Yeah. And uh, I've been on the campuses of University of Washington, University of Oregon, uh, University of UC Berkeley, um, USC, those ones I have, and uh, Berkeley is cool because it's up on this hill. Yeah. It's just like on this hill and uh, there's these weird looking trees. Uh, you know, this is like the first time I was like west of the Mississippi River, so to see at University of Oregon, there's these massive evergreen trees. Yeah. That's cool. And then in Berkeley, there's like these palm trees, but they kind of look like what well, I would imagine, like in Greece. Oh, interesting. Like trees like that, or a little bit. But uh, I remember going into the. They had like a paleontology building. Oh, and cool. And there were some dinosaurs there. That Love was cool. That. Just walking around. It wasn't open at the time, I don't think, but uh, the campus mainly, or school. Yeah. In that session, but um, no, it was during finals, I believe. Oh, okay. But. Uh, Beautiful campus. Yeah. yeah. So you're going out there, going up to Madison. And then um, I've done research, a lot of local stuff. I've done some stuff in Charleston, South Carolina, and some stuff up at the University of Georgia. Um, so once I finish the research for this summer, these trips, there's only a few other places that I'd really like to get. And a lot of those collections are smaller, so I might even be able to have them just send me stuff instead of having to get out there. Um, the other, like, biggest one would maybe be New York, and that still is, like, a we'll-see pro uh, problem depending on 
where this like relationship between small left to center presses and then the Communist Party papers at uh, NYU, how much I can really tease out there. I still have to do more with that. But other than that, most of the research will be done. Um, I'm right around 100 pages into the dissertation from what I already have. It'll probably end up being around three to 400 pages, cover to cover. Okay, so then at what point do you say, I have enough research? That's like, a, that's the problem of a historian. And it's yeah. one of the hardest problems that we like have, truly. Because no matter what you do, you don't have enough research and there's always something else. And the second you publish, there's a hundred people who are telling you that. <laughs> um, so everyone wants to critique and say, why didn't you look at this? Why didn't you do this? Like, why, why didn't you go to this place and look at these papers? And it's like, because I didn't have time and money to do everything in the world. Um, I would love to, but you just don't have the time. So how I kind of approach it is in my brain, I have an idea of like what this narrative will look like based on the research that I've already done and from the research of what I know is at some of these archives. And then once I go and I get to sources, I take a lot of time with them. I really sit down and like read them over and over again. Think about what like every word means in the documents. A lot of it is personal papers from people. So I try and get the best sense of like, what is this trying to say and how will this help me? And then I see the story kind of grow from there. And I luckily with the prospectus, that's kind of your like dip your toes into the water and have academics who are in the field tell you, is this a good idea? So once that was successfully defended, it was like, okay, this proposed question that I've put out into the world, other academics agree that it is a good question and that it's a valid question that should be explored. So now how do I kind of fill in the gaps with the research and find the right puzzle pieces? Yeah. Um, there's not a really great answer to that because the true answer is there's never a good stopping point. Eventually you just have to get out. You just have to be done. And that's the sad answer. But Well, I'm, I'm like running into this a little bit and we, we've talked about this where you know we've been doing this podcast and kind of a lot of my focus has been you know seeing this through and, and developing it and, right. and but there's and we're putting stuff out consistently like uh early june i was like i'm well this summer i'm trying to as as you guys probably know if you've been listening i'm trying to really improve my systems and processes and organization. And so I went back like a year and we did exactly 130 episodes That's in the wild. last year from June 2nd, like June 2nd, 2020 to, no, 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 21 to 22 yeah. now. And, uh, but there's this, I've talked about it with you. I've talked about it with Matt Bones, who's in Bone Lane. And there's like a part of me that just like, is like yearning and suffering because I want to work on something, a creative project that's like a part of you and your soul and you just like spend so much time in it. So throughout this time, well, I started writing fiction back in 2020 when like the pandemic yeah. hit and we all, you know, you had to bunker down. So right. I just started writing and then I was like, this is probably the most like, pivotal moment 
of anybody who exists right now, their life. Yeah. At least until this point. Why would I spend it just like inside? I got to be out exploring right. and experiencing you, yeah. this. Yeah. So since then, I've just been living life. And the writing, what I realized, going back to what we said earlier about getting to know oneself better is like I don't write from imagination in a way I write from experience right so it's like I gotta experience this but I just keep collecting source material yeah. <laughs> and it's like <coughs> I was talking to this woman the other day so we were at the Chicago Athletic Association we got we got rain coming down on us I think we should keep going okay yeah right I'm down yeah okay and um, we have a tour right behind us. For those of you that don't know, uh, John Dillinger, a notorious gangster, was uh, shot and killed in that alleyway right there. They made a movie about it called Public Enemies. Christian Bale, Johnny Depp. Uh, this was back when I was in college. My freshman year, they shut this street down. Yeah. Put cobblestone here. They had uh, signs that made it look like 1930s yeah. Chicago. So there's, in the summer, like... 15 uh, yeah. tours a day that yeah. <laughs> stop by there. You can kind of hear them. Yeah. Um, but so I was at the Athletic Association. <coughs> I noticed this woman sit next to me or at the table next to me. So we strike up a conversation and I was telling her, because she was doing some writing. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm writing this book right now. And then she asked about it. I was like, yeah, I got all the source material. I just got to write the outline and write it. And as I said that, I'm like, that's the most pathetic thing I've ever said. Like, yeah. that sounded so pathetic. Because that sounds like every non-writer out there. <laughs> yeah, right. I got all these ideas. Yeah. Uh, I just got to write it. And the difference between writers and non-writers is that writers write. Right. So ever since that moment, I'm like, all right. Yeah, you're collecting all the source material. You got to sit down. You got to figure this out. That's... Um it's truly one of the most difficult things to do. And, like, I feel very lucky. I've spent a lot of time practicing writing. I think I'm a decent enough writer. Um, but, like, actually sitting down to do it, especially from this academic standpoint, is very difficult. Um, because, like, during the school year, you're getting paid, you're teaching, but you have no time. Because you're just constantly teaching, constantly grading, um, helping students working here and then in the summer when you have a little bit more time you're not getting paid to teach so then you have to take on other jobs and then you run back into that problem of like running out of time so right now um, I have three jobs and then I'm writing my dissertation so I tell people I have like four jobs between the just the jobs um, it's around 80 to 90 hours of work a week and then the dissertation is on top of that and I like to spend at least 15 to 20 hours on that so in a like normal week right now, I'm spending around 100 hours working, which is horrible. <laughs> um, it's really like a 12-hour day every day of the week. Um, yeah. And it's just nonstop. And it's between research and writing and being at the bar um, to try and like finish it and actually get words onto paper. Because for too long, especially during COVID when the world was shut down, I was running into that wall where I wasn't writing as much as I would have wanted to. Um, and now that things are a little bit more open up, I've been able to do a little bit of the travel. I'm really trying to like settle down and 
put words on paper. So. Yeah, I've been doing that now, and uh, I told told you this. I was like, yeah, I've been writing. It's so much fun, just to like, uh, get in there. Yeah, I love it. And then every word matters, and the stuff I have written, like when I look back at it, I'm like. Hey, I love that. Yeah. I'm not changing that. Yeah. You know, uh, which will depend once editors get their hands on it. But, uh, we'll, see about <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that, Rich. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's what's, uh, it's cool too because, like, well, I, I told you that it brought me back into writing extensively. Like in 2018, when my when I wrote my first book, right, and I'm noticing I can use structures and lessons learned and things I did from that book and apply them to right. this one, right. Um, whereas the other two books, I mean, one was a children's book, another one was an art, art book, book yeah. so it wasn't there's was less words, right. which means you got to. It's a different kind of writing, definitely, definitely. But with fiction. Uh, you know, you're just like pounding the stuff out, yeah. and I notice I'm drinking Lacroix again. Yeah, I didn't drink. I haven't drank Lacroix since like 2018 <laughs> when I was writing. Yeah, and uh, I have, I have like a writing music. Yeah, that I do. So same. This like piano kind of music, same. and then I have like writing break music. Yeah, which is my 2022 summer playlist. Love that got Harry Styles, Dua Lipa on it, uh, we got some reggaeton, where it's like very high energy when I'm taking a break from writing, taking yeah. a step back, all of a sudden you start dancing. But it's different writing in the summer Yeah. compared to like I was writing in the winter and early spring. 100%. 100%. It's just we it's weird to me to write in a tank top and shorts. Yeah. And I'm like trying to process it. Like, it always makes me feel guilty. It's funny. It's weird. That. Yeah, <laughs> I feel always very guilty writing in the summer because I know myself, um, and I know that I like, again, very introverted. So I do spend a lot of time at home trying to just like relax away from things if I have time off, working too many hours, anyways. Um, but when it's so nice out, I want to take advantage of that because I know what's coming with the Chicago winter. And that's going to be really, like, you are locked inside. Like, don't go outside. Yeah. Um, so, historically, I've always done my best writing in the winter from, like, 1 to 7 in the morning. Like, that's, like, prime David writing time. Wait, so this is 1 a.m. to 7 a.m.? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's how I work. Like, I don't know why. Yeah. Um, I like the stillness of life at those times, especially Dude, in the winter. It's so awesome. Yeah. yeah when there's like a fresh snow and you can like go step outside for a second and like that cold air just kind of smacks you in the face but it's so like bone chillingly quiet to a point where it's almost scary but also relaxing like that's when i feel like my brain is able to like really really get the best workout in the summer i always feel a little distracted or like i should be out enjoying something if i have the time because otherwise I'm spending my time inside writing or researching or working or teaching. Um, and I don't want my entire life to be work. It currently is, but I would like that yeah. to not be everything. <laughs> um, so that's definitely something that I've dealt with and like tried to navigate. Switching gears a bit. 
Got bigger jo- droplets of rain. Bigger droplets. We're okay so far, maybe. Uh, it almost felt like it was slowing down there for a second. It, it kind of did. And yeah. Now it's, it's picking back up a little harder. Yeah. We'll see. I feel like we'll know when we know. I feel like... <laughs> yeah. That's a quote right there. <laughs> we'll know when we know. Um, switching gears a bit, you are teaching a class on the Civil War this summer? Yes. Um, it was super last minute. I didn't know I was going to be able to do it. Uh, the department... A lot of students, specifically with history, just I don't know why it ends up to be a thing so often, but um, a lot of students try and get those like liberal arts side of the, more of the social science side of their degrees done if they can. Rock out a class in the summer if it's not their major field. Yeah. Um, the problem with that is you never know if the class is going to be able to run if there's not enough students in it. Okay. So we like just hit over the threshold of what we needed, and the class is running. So. The students are excited. It's all like asynchronous, so it's a lot of recording lectures, having the students participate on like a discussion board, um, and then meeting with students and like holding like writing seminars, air quotes for seminars, just little moments to kind of get them to like think about writing and how to approach their papers. Um, but it's an eight-week course. It's front-loaded with a lot of reading and a lot of writing, but at the end of the day, it's manageable for a lot of students, so they want to take advantage of that if they can. The one hurdle you have to get over is, are you going to have enough students for the school to have the class run? Which is it's normally right around like 60 is where they like to keep it. They are flexible. If, it's, if you're at 50, it'll go. Um, but it's super exciting. It's all asynchronous. So a lot of the lectures are like pre-recorded so students can watch them on their own time. But then I hold like little moments for writing seminars with the students for their papers to kind of talk through like research ideas. And then they get to discuss with their peers and with me on like a discussion board online. Um, I think it's an important class in general, and especially right now, it's like in the wake of the the years that we have been living in. I think being able to look back at the Civil War and see how like a country divided can correlate both to like that period in time, but both also like what we can take out of that for our own lives today is super interesting and I think important for a lot of students. So I've been, it's early in the process, it's only an eight week class, so it's like very heavy on the reading and writing, but so far the students seem to be pretty excited about it uh, and pretty interested in the topic, so. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, It's like the topic of Civil War is coming up more recently, or like, interest in the Civil War, right? right? Uh, Because we're experiencing some things in the country or life right now, and it's like, okay, let's go back. How how were things handled back then when a country was going through a type of division, and and, uh, what can we learn from that? And it's like it was only 160 years ago. Yeah. Historically, as you know, as a historian, like, that's not a long period of time. Not a long time at, at all. Um, that's part of the, the wildest thing, really, um, to like talk to students about, especially when it comes to the Civil War. And it, I think it's a lot of like the century that it happened in. So they see like eighteen, like in the in the start eighteen sixty two, eighteen sixty three, eighteen sixty four, eighteen and they like think, oh, that's so far ago, like that's so long ago. But then you like put it in context and you say like okay my parents my dad was born 
1960. His parents were alive when the government was doing a lot of their WPA recordings, some of which interviewed like the last remaining slaves, people who were once yeah. enslaved. So it's really only like two generations removed from something that seems like so far away. And when students really see and hear some of those recordings or read some of those like stories, um, I think it's humbling for them to be like, oh, it's not as far away as it, I originally thought. I, I think it like, hits home for them on that. And it's like they're... It's like... I think when you're young, you just... You look at these main things, like... Uh, there's no slavery. There's there's right. civil rights, and you learn about MLK right. Jr. and like the movements then, and you're like, oh, yeah, like everything's all good. Yeah, but you then you're up. like, oh, wait a minute, that was like only 120 years ago. This is still a healing process that we're in. Right, it, where there's still so much hate and violence, and like it. Growing up, when you when you are a second grader and they teach you about the civil rights movement, it's easy to think like, oh, we won and things are good now. And then as you grow up and you like experience life a little bit more, you see a lot of like these disparities that are still present in society. And you see the way that slavery has transformed into just like a different name really in America. And I think that for students who are very used to and comfortable with that idea of like, oh, like progress has been made. They, when they have a college level course and they can see that some of these problems both still exist and it is, like you said, still a healing process, it becomes a little bit more real for them. And then just the last couple of years, I mean, we've seen so much with Black Lives Matter and the rise in like social activism and political activism. And I think students are really seeing like, no, this, it, this isn't just like a hard stop bookend everything's good we can wash our hands of it there's progress only works if we all commit to the idea of progress and we all live the idea of progress so um i love being able to teach a course like this because i think it really does much more than teaching western civ where it's more of a survey and it's more of the students just reading about kings and monarchs um being able to really see like what happened in our country and how relevant it still is to their lives today um, I think it makes them a little bit more interested and they participate a little bit more so yeah something like I that comes on my mind like I'll see on social media and like you know I hear people talk like you know the stuff isn't taught in history class why didn't we learn this stuff in history class and high school stuff and I'm thinking like Usually in school, you have to learn about all these subjects. Right. You only have so much time, so you got to hit the main points. Right. And even my own experience, like, I didn't get this other expanded version of American history until I took AP U.S. history. Right. And then I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> a lot. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of, you know, a lot going on. Yeah, and, I, and I, it's it's like now in this class, I'm sure they get more of that right. Kind they, of perspective too. Every, as you grow up, you always just get like a little bit more, a little bit more in the classes. I do think that curriculum isn't perfect, and that it can be improved, and that there are stories and ways to tell history and to teach 
literature to students and writing to students, history students, um, that's a little bit more interactive and challenges maybe some of the norms that we've experienced within like K through 12 curriculums. Um, that's again, it's something that we can as like a collective work on and try and always improve. And I think that we do see some improvement on that. I know when I was working in Charleston, one of the big things that, one of like the final projects that I was working on was uh, creating a new curriculum, a new history curriculum for the K through 12 schools um, to be proposed at like educational board meetings, where it was just, it was the South, right? So um, promoting a little bit more of a true history or a, a real history rather than a lot of like the whitewashed Southern history that these students were accustomed to for their entire lives. So there still is progress that needs to be made, but I think that you're right, as you grow up, you just are presented to a little bit more, a little bit more, a yeah. little bit more. And you're able to really kind of put those blocks on top of each other and build. So. Yeah. So what are you, uh, what are, like, talking about the Civil War itself, what intrigues you the most about it? What aspects of it do you find most interesting? That's tough because there's a lot of ways I could go on it. Um, I've never been, a lot of, I have a lot of peers who, were very fascinated and interested in like the military history of the Civil War, which is like an interesting point. I think that again, I, I might be biased from my time in the South, but I think that the most interesting part of it is these two conflicting like societies within the same country. And we see that obviously today, like we live in Chicago, we could drive to Southern Illinois different society, like, different worldview. Yeah. Um, however, you really have this, like, birth almost of two different countries during the Civil War, and it's just so, like, fascinating to me to be able to read and see the sources from, like, the North compared to the South, and I mean that both, like, socially, what the everyday person is thinking, politically, what politics was kind of discussing and talking about, um, and then I, I really love the the personal narratives and stories because I think that the Civil War, more so than a lot of other American wars, um, and this is going to be weird, but it was very familial, where it hit home. It was fought on, like on our land. It was families fighting families. It was America fighting America. Um, so when you really get into a lot of like the sources of people kind of discussing it, there's a lot more empathy about their enemy and there's a lot more empathy about like what's the point of this why are we here um i think one of the greatest injustices is that people allow a dialogue or a rhetoric to be promoted around the civil war that it wasn't about slavery it's all about slavery that's the entire point um if anyone is ever going to be like it's about states rights it's a state's right to have slavery <laughs> like or it's about like a detail that the north violated a clause or a little th minute thing that's why the civil war happened right it's like it's no like, we would have comp we would have figured that out like that that alone would have been enough to figure out um we wouldn't have gone to a war over over clause. Like, yeah yeah <laughs> it's this entirely new system and structure that's being imposed within the country that i think um so like i i always tell my students up front like like the a, technicalities. Right. Yeah. And, and people always want to avoid that. Um, 
But I mean, the, it was a war about slavery, and I don't think there's any other way you should teach it. I think that's that's just what the war was. Um, you can expand on like how these different aspects of the Civil War kind of played together and like interplayed with slavery. Um, but at the end of the day, like, that's what the war was about. Um, and I think it's really important to like be blunt and upfront about that because I had not thought it until I moved to the South for my masters, but like there are still a lot of people in this country who like just like vehemently disagree that the war was about slavery and they fall back onto these ideas of like states' rights and politics. It's like so I, I try and so, be as upfront as I can. Something I've been observing is that it seems like we're seeing more it's not necessarily about, well, I think we're in the future, the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see more and more states kind of doing their own thing. I think COVID was kind of a, a catalyst of this or a trigger where I think COVID is really like a trigger for, for many different things. But um, when you look at, you know, Chicago is different than rural Illinois and it's different than Wisconsin and and COVID this like kind of invisible thing you see this rise of like local municipalities deciding what they want to do what's best for their communities right at the same time you have this now remote location or remote uh, capabilities so now people can live wherever they want to live you see a bunch of people leaving California and it seems like the next 10 to 15 years, states and cities are going to position themselves to differentiate themselves from other states right. to attract people. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I, I definitely think we're going to see that 100%. I think that's something that is already being seen. Um, like you said, if you can do work remote, right, a lot of people are leaving places where it's more expensive to live if they can keep their job um, and they'll go find a more affordable place or they'll be closer to family or friends um, if their job's not forcing them to be somewhere separate, right? So, like, I think that we're seeing a ton of that change and shifts with, like, the local... A, a local community really becoming more important than it might have been five, ten years ago. So what I'm, what I'm curious about, you know, so a lot of people say the Civil War you know, in the 1860s is about state, states' rights, but at the same time, this national kind of discourse on the big topic of slavery. America, you know, if we're states and everybody, every state is able to create laws and a vision of what they want under the umbrella of the federal government, And it seems like today, more and more people want to like impose their own culture and ideas of living onto other areas. How do we keep that vision of what America is and still have all these separate acting things? Yeah, I think that's tough. Um, And I don't know if I have a a great answer to that. 
because, like, I mean, like you said, like, so many people, right, um, have such radical different worldviews based on where they're from or how they were raised or, like, what their social life is like, what their community is like, they live in a big city, a small city, um, and as a country, it's just, we're so expansive and sprawling that it's really difficult, like, it's really difficult to have a, a strong answer to that question, I think, I, I, like, I, I would hope that people could approach it in a way where loving your neighbor and loving your community and appreciating each other can come first so that you could settle the other differences that you might have peacefully. Um, but I, I think this idea of, like, changing communities and changing personal perspectives on, like, your own tiny worldview within such a large country... Um, I don't know if there is a good answer to that. I think it's, like, a difficult... Yeah, it's like... America's about freedom, right? Right. So, when you live in America, you're free to live however you want, as long as you're following these right. particular rules that we outline. What I don't understand is why people are so obsessed with telling other people how to live. Right. Right. It and seems is it to contradict the, that entire idea, right? Yeah, it's like, why would I care how you live or whatever? Right. It doesn't matter to me. Right, as long as you're not impeding That's what's so great about the country. The, the, why, the, so why are we getting mad about the thing that makes us so great? As long as, as long as the ideas that you have aren't impeding someone else's ability to live, like, right, that American yeah. dream, like, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Like, I know it's not super cheesy, and it is kind of cheesy, and, like, Historically, I can go back and say, like, okay, you can, you can say life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and as a country, we contradict that constantly. But if we really want to believe that that is, like, a foundational principle of our country, then it starts with, I think, the individual people of the country saying, like, I can have my views, but as long as I'm not impeding on your life, yeah. then that's okay. And you don't have to be aggressive or violent towards me as long as and we should be able to have a dialogue and get along with each other and even if we don't want to be best friends at least be able to talk with each other where the immediate reaction isn't trying to hurt the other person or like impede on their life or put your own ideas and impose those on someone else's belief system right I think it's ego ego gets in the way I, a lot I think of this. you're right sliding into something else that's very American you are looking at putting together a syllabus to teach the history of baseball. Yeah. So it's very early in that process. I've just started. Uh, um, I've been wanting to do this for a while. Whenever you start to put together a syllabus for a class like that, um, there's a lot of reading of books that you get halfway, three quarters of the way into. And you're like, I find this interesting, but this isn't a good like book for my students. Um, so you end up reading just like a ton of material and then you have to kind of cut it down to the best, you know, chapters out of all of these books that I could put in and have it be like required reading. I, the, the theoretical part of why I kind of want to teach this course is I love baseball. It's my favorite sport. And I, uh, I see this like, very, very intimate relationship between our country and the sport of baseball. And we can see changes through politics. We can see changes through race. 
one of the main reasons why there's so much signs in baseball is because deaf baseball players. So there's a huge relationship between oh, disability wow. and the sport, um, which is like my career path. So that's something that's really fascinating and interesting to me. There's a lot of like Americana and folklore that goes into the sport and a lot of our like legends, right? We talk about like the great Bambino. It's like almost bigger than life, some of these stories. Um, so I think that it's, it's a fascinating way to kind of approach American history through this alternative lens that a lot of students aren't often given. And a lot of students are very, if history is not their primary interest, they're a little standoffish to kind of approaching a history class because they think it's just going to be the same as their high school history class and they're going to be memorizing names and dates and they're going to be bored. Um, but when they see, oh, history of baseball, right, it, it sparks that curiosity and that interest a little bit more for them. I, I have found with other classes that are like similar, of course, that are similar. Um, so that's that's the idea that I have in place. I've been working with uh, the, the history department trying to figure out when a good time to teach it would be, fall or spring, and um, really trying to hammer out like a thorough, complete syllabus that would cover all the bases that I want. Yeah. But, <laughs> bases. <laughs> um, but also remain interesting for the students, right? I don't want it to, yeah. I don't, you never want your history course to just be, especially for undergrads, so much reading that they just give up and don't do the reading. Yeah. Like, why are you there? Um, so I want to keep it interactive enough for them to like enjoy it, but also I don't want to trick them, but trick them <laughs> into rediscovering a love right for history that they may have lost or never developed. Okay. In so you're using like a sport as a vehicle to get them more interested in history and important right things. Yeah. Yeah. You could talk, I mean, I have, there's so much, I, I have personal stories from interviews that I've conducted with World War II veterans who talk about when they were overseas and waiting on bases before Normandy, right, that they're playing pickup baseball games in England, and, or they're bringing their mitts with them. Um, this one veteran had passed away and his son was kind of going through some of his dad's old stuff and selling some of it off. And uh, he had his dad's World War II catcher mitt that he like brought with him to the war. And he was like, yeah, like, you seem like a nice guy. You love baseball. You just have this. He's like, I'm a veteran. My dad was a veteran. Um, he would want this to go to someone that would appreciate it. You seem like you appreciate it. Um, so, like, I worked with him, and we, like, figured out stuff on the side. But, um, right, like, that's one way we could go. We could go the disability and science way. We could go yeah. the obvious integration of the sport. We could go the economics of baseball and, and the changes of being able to go to a game for nothing or for pennies yeah. in the early 1900s to where we are today, where it has really become such a commercialized, like, constant profit, astronomical amount of, like, money in the sport. Um, I think it just really embodies our country in a lot of ways and it covers all of these important moments. So I can kind of connect baseball to anything if I try hard enough. When did, when did the MLB start? Um, it started the early, there, there was like the American League and the National League were different like sub leagues that weren't necessarily part of this okay. unified like Major League Baseball League. Um, and those trace themselves back to a lot of the teams are different. You can trace it back to right around 
like the 1860s-ish. Um, it's tough because a lot of those leagues kind of grow into different teams. So, so is that why like winning the pennant is considered a big thing? Because the National League and American League, they were separate. Right. So yeah. it was like winning the pennant was winning essentially the World Series, right? Yeah. Um, and now we have this larger league where we have both these smaller leagues together and they play each other and now the winner of everything yeah. is here. So. I gotta say, I, uh, I've been getting into baseball more this year. Yeah. I think I told you this. This is the first time I started doing fantasy baseball for like probably, gosh, maybe like 10 years. Yeah. I think fantasy uh, sports is a great way to like learn about the players and, and get more involved. Um, I went to two games a couple of weeks ago at Wrigley when uh, the Brewers were in yeah. town. Memorial Day weekend, right? Yeah, so they were there Memorial Day, so then Felipe Hernandez and I, uh, you guys probably know him, he's been a guest on the show three or four times. Uh, we went Memorial Day, then I just went the next day too. Yeah. Because the Cubs are bad. Are bad, so <laughs> tickets are pretty cheap. It's a 30 minute walk yeah. from my apartment. It was like 80 degrees. I brought my notebook, I brought this notebook, and I just I just went by myself. I sat in the outfield, it's and then I was just like, to do. Just to go to it's such a great atmosphere. I just love it. It's so chill, and uh, man, in the summer, it's so hard to beat. And yeah. it, 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 it really does is. feel like that Americana, and just, man. It like, I don't want to speak for everyone. I know people have different interests. Some people feel like it goes too long, but man, being like in the bleachers at a baseball game, there's something special about it. It's different. It just hits different than any other sporting event I've ever been to. Um, I'm probably really biased on that. I can accept that. But it's just like that feeling that it's more than just a sport when I'm there. Um, yeah. I love it. I can't get enough of it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got to thank you for uh, for recording with me today. This has been fun as always. Always. Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks for having me back on. I really um, I love being here. I love being able to talk to you. Like you said, I... I We've both been really busy, so being able to carve out an hour or two has yeah. been difficult. So even beyond just the podcast, being able to sit down and chat with you. So it was great. We did it outside this time, too. It was a good experiment. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> Had its ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. But overall, uh, yeah, this has been another episode of Bridge Conversations. Thank you for listening and watching, and thanks again to David for being on. Yeah, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Dr. Dave. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Take some time to think about the concept of history and how we're living in our own moment of history and what will you do to make an impact, a positive impact on the world moving forward. With that being said, have a fantastic day.